Happy Monday. Fly the L, Cubs fans and Cubs organization, because the Brewers are turning up the heat, baby. Setting fires everywhere. Your first place, Milwaukee Brewers. Another series win and domination away from American Family Field. The Brewers juggernauts. You love to see it. They are 9-3. and three. On the road, they return home tonight, though, to start taking on the Miami Marlins. The Brewers have already blanked uh, uh, blanked the Cubs three times and the Padres once. So they have four, you know, Seros under their belt so far in this early season. It's crazy. Yeah, and looking ahead for the rest of April, they have a three-game, it's a seven-game homestand. Three yeah. with the Marlins, like you just said, and four with the Dodgers. If somehow they can end that seven-game homestand going four and three, you know, taking two out of three from the fish and taking uh, two out of four from the Dodgers because it's hard to win a series in a four-game set. Especially against the Dodgers, too. If they can go four and three and they bring their record to 17 and 11, wow. What wow. a first full month for the Milwaukee Brewers, especially when Ooh. the bullpen's in the bottom third. Yep. The hitting is about middle of the road right now, and the pitching has been top five. It's been stellar, dude. And you have no Christian Yelich, no Lorenzo Cain. Colton Wong's back, and he's doing very well. Oh, yeah, Christian Yelich will be out for at least two weeks. Yeah, he's got an MRI. Lorenzo Cain will be will have been out for at least two weeks. Colton Wong sat on the shelf for at least ten days. Yep. And you still have pieces in the bullpen that you thought at the beginning of the year, like Devin Williams, who was lights out last year. Yep. He hasn't been 100%. Now, granted, his last few outings, he's looking closer to back to normal, and they finally used him two days in a row over the weekend, so it looks like he's probably back to being where they want him to be. But again, he hadn't been there until this weekend at that point. Yep. You have been missing guys like Justin Topa, who started to get bigger innings down the stretch last year. He's not going to be there for the first two months. Mm -hmm. And you have guys like Ray Black, and others like that that have logged innings or that can give you uh, low, lower leverage situations out of the pen, they haven't been available because they're also injured. Totally. So, I mean, there's been a ton of injuries, well, and they're, they're continuing to win. And then you just look at the guys who aren't injured at actually playing, like Keston Hira, who's been absolutely atrocious. He actually did pretty good on Saturday at three hits. So it was nice to see from Kest Daddy. He's kind of turning it around. He's betting 155 now. And I'm, you know what's crazy to me? I'm starting to see... Brewer fans on Twitter talk about how Travis Shaw is trash. Mm, 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 I no. get that he's batting 216. And remember when we were talking about, oh, he's, he's the only one with uh, him and Omar Nervais are batting over 300. In what universe did you expect Travis Shaw to hit 300? Yeah, here's the thing. <laughs> oh, sorry. Well, well here's the thing the about Travis Shaw, right, Rowdy? <laughs> is Travis Shaw was hot to start the season, and we said eventually he will cool off. Yeah. Someone else needs to then get hot and you know carry like the Like right sticks. now, Travis Shaw offensively is going through a, a tough, a cold streak. Yeah. He was on fire for the first two and a half weeks. Yeah, now hit, the last week. hit in the foot, though. Yeah. Now the mm-hmm. last week. He's taking walks. He's, he's cooled off quite a bit, and that average now that you're early in the season is going to jump up and down quite a bit. But what you're seeing from him... He still worked some good at bats. He mm-hmm. he drew two RBIs from a hit by pitch. Hell yeah. And and a walk. Yep. And now granted, he's still finding hits, but he's not hitting at that clip. Again, but at we, the end of the year, 
if Shaw's hitting 240, you'll take that all day. With the run, he's tied for third in the NL for uh, RBIs. And people yeah. are already That's turning their back on Shaw, Rowdy. Right. They're already turning their back and, on Shaw. And he's playing plus defense. Yeah, and that's that's the thing you also have to look at here. You have a true third baseman playing. Mm-hmm. And, like, and I, he can move to first. And he, and, and he did. <laughs> he and played, he did. He went from third to first and, back to and you, third. And you could probably say <laughs> that right now he's defensively your best first baseman when he's at first base. Yeah. Because yeah. he's better than Vogelback, and he's obviously better than Keston here, who just transferred to the position literally a month and a half ago. Well, right. Shaw collected a 16th RBI yesterday of the year. That's the same number he had for the entire 2019 season. When, and, and when he, he played, played in 80 80, games. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, that's just like Omar Narvaez's numbers. Dude, how about I mean, Narvaez? He, he literally has the same exact run production right now through 21 games for the Milwaukee Brewers. That he had in 50 for the Blue Jays. And the Blue Jays, that was somewhat of a bounce back year after 2019. Well, right. in 2019, Rowdy, yeah, he played in 86 games for the Brewers where he was like struggling, you know? And remember... And he had 16 RBIs that whole year. Remember how we were talking about how there are guys on this team that aren't great, but they're serviceable and they can help carry teams for point in times. Most of them Travis, are playing right now. Travis Shaw <laughs> helped carry the team for the first two and a half weeks. Yeah. Now he's not swinging the bat well, but that's where you expect guys like, I don't know, the MVP and Christian Yelich yep. to start bringing a, a pull in his own weight, but he's still on the shelf with a back injury. But they've also looked at guys like Billy McKinney. Yeah. He, he's starting to cool off. But again, he helped carry the team for a solid week. But yeah, but do you expect Billy McKinney to be carrying exactly. the torch all year? No. You, you yes. can't expect those type oh. of players <laughs> yes. to, to be playing at that type of a level for 162 games. That's why when you play that many games, water finds its level. That's right. But but you got to be ecstatic that you're finding ways to win games with these players when your big guns are on the shelf. Yep. All right, so we're going to keep talking about the, the Brewers coming up here. we got to talk about the pitching staff and news about Christian Yelich. After the Friday performance from the Chicago Cubs where they did annihilate the Brewers, Anderson came on the mound and got absolutely shelled. Turned out it was a was it a hamstring? Yeah, it was a, a right hamstring. And then after that, Josh Lindblom came in, and he got, Jesus, lit up, yes? So when that game started, Anderson didn't look Chris from the start. No. Got, what, an out or two, and then started giving up some hits. Yeah, one out. And then obviously came down with the with the strained right hamstring. They had to pull him out. Was that a wink-wink, or do you think that was no, a strained No, so right then RJ, RJ brought up a, a message, and he goes... Do you think when two of your okay, we'll play it back. So then Lynn Lynn Bloom comes in and absolutely just gets shelled, right? Yeah, just annihilated. He couldn't stop the bleeding whatsoever, and it just really snowballed. And then he gave his what three and change that he threw. He threw nearly a hundred pitches, and the two were out of there before the fifth inning. It was bad. And it, it was tough. Not great, Bob. Especially, it was bad. especially when you're looking up and it's already like eight to nothing in the second inning, and you're already demoralized because the Cubs are just smashing the baseball all around the diamond. And uh, RJ puts in the message. He goes, "Do you think it's really a thing when two of your pitchers who got absolutely shelled are now both hurt, or is it a wink, wink?" Now to that point. Anderson had been throwing the ball extremely well, especially for a guy that they had penciled in as the fifth starter. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, personally, I thought he would have been higher in that rotation going into the season. I thought at the lowest, he probably would have been your fourth starter. I think that's a legit strained right hamstring because 
why would you all of a sudden take out a guy, even if he doesn't have his best stuff, right away because yeah. of a, an injury? But the limb bloom after going nearly 100 pitches and, and really getting shelled, <laughs> but being the guy that had to take one for the team to, to eat up some innings because you're playing 17 consecutive games, I think that's a wink, wink. Hey, Josh, <laughs> okay. I, I think you got an injury here because we're going to need another pitcher for another arm. We have 17 so, games yeah. in a uh, row. And the only Here's, reason I bring up Anderson is because as is the TV broadcast, because uh, I was recording it while I was at work, yeah. I went back and just watched it to see what he was doing because I only had the radio broadcast. But, but you were curious. You know, you watch it, and it doesn't look like anything. And the TV broadcast even says, well, you can see Pena signaling or uh, whoever was the catcher that day, uh, Narvaez or I forget who it was, but um, you can see them signaling over to the dugout something's wrong. And you're like, It was Manny Pena, yeah. And I'm like, no, you can't. Like, <laughs> Do you want to know what Lindblom's designation is for the IL? It is, I have it right here, it is a right knee, sort of? right knee effusion, and that is water on the knee. So I looked up, oh. I'm like, it's E-F-F-U-S-I-O-N. That just means your patella can move around a lot more easily. Or it's called water on the knee. When excess fluid accumulates in or around the knee joint, there are many common causes for the swelling, including arthritis and injury to the ligaments. Is that, like, did his bursar sac uh, bust or something? I don't know, but th- th- that's what it is, is knee effusion. So that's what Lindblom went on the IL for. So uh, he got just... Uh, it that could be a while. I th- I truly think it was one where they go, wink, wink. "Hey, dude, you just threw a hundred pitches. You haven't really been throwing that type of volume this entire season, even going back to training camp. The last time you threw anything remotely close to this would have been in September. And one, obviously, they're not going to say this to his face, but one, you haven't been throwing very well at all. Yeah. And two, you just threw that many pitches. Mm. You're probably going to, well, you're definitely going to be down." for probably four more days, I think that's where they just need some arms. I mean, look at what they did when they put those two on the IL. They brought up Phil Bickford, who was a guy that was uh, throwing in spring training, was a guy that you might potentially have seen as like a September call-up type guy. And, I mean, it just was allowed them to bring up another pitcher for another arm. And now that they can uh, have those extra arms that are fresh, because 17 games without a day off is a long time, especially yeah. when you're going to be playing teams like the Dodgers coming up here soon. Yeah. You're going to want some fresh arms. Yeah. All right, so we'll talk more of these arms here, but also I want to talk about something that happened in baseball with Madison Bumgarner, uh, speaking of pitchers. But before that, uh, before break, let's go to the phones again. Welcome to the show. Who is this? Yeah, uh, can you hear me? Yeah, what's up, brother? All right, so effusion is water on the knee, right? Yes. Who is this, by the way? Uh, this is Paul. Hey, Paul. From, what's uh, up? Morning, Paul. Paul Paul from Marinette. Scott's an amateur. I just got out of work half hour ago. I'm eight beers deep. <laughs> <laughs> My man, get those after work beers, baby. What are we drinking? Uh, Bud Light. But, so, let's see. Lindblom's got water on the knee. You got some uh, some uh, fire water on the, uh, the liver. In the veins. In the veins. So, so I got to say this, all right? You guys aren't, you're not going to like this. Uh, this is coming from a Cubs fan. Yes. Okay? okay. Good. I love it. Yes. The stage back, is yours. Back, back since Sutcliffe and Sandberg and the Hawk and all those guys. <laughs> so you're an OG. It, it, yeah, and we suffered a long, long, long time. Correct. N- not all Cubs fans are d bags. No, I no, know that. But, absolutely not. But, but Paul, I like but, to paint with a broad brush. Yeah. Well, you know, hey, you gotta you gotta hit all the spots. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yes. Yeah. But, 
What I want to say is, if Fusion's water on the knee, I think a lot of Brewer fans got water on the brain because, seriously, you guys have had a lot of success lately. Um, not not major, but but good for you, you know? Um, yes. And, I, you know, I got, I got no hate for the Brewers. I, I, I would like to see them do good. Even hey, Paul, the Cubs fans. I like this. Okay, so I have, uh, my, I have family members that are Cubs fans. I have friends that are Cubs fans. So I like uh, just poking the bear a little bit, you know. But when oh. it's the ex- nauseating, like, Dave from Monona Cubs fans that really get under my skin. Like, someone like you, though, Paul, who's an OG, who's been there, done that. I love that we can do this. We can share mutual hatred for the St. Louis Cardinals, correct? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. 100%. I love that. I love that. Hey, yep. Guys, listen to you every morning uh, as soon as I get out of work, so I appreciate the uh, the time and uh, keep it up. Hey, Paul, don't be a stranger, and we love the you know the Cubs fans calling in. The We appreciate ones like you, my brother. Thank you. All right, go enjoy those beers. All right, thanks, bud. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> Paul and Marinette, good stuff right there from Paul. See, that's the thing. Like Dave from Anona ruins it for other people. Oh, there's, there's a – and. And Paul's and right. Also, I like it's sports talk radio, so I like to get people yeah. like and like little peeved well, and call in. I've yeah. told you guys about how I had a buddy in college who's from Illinois, big big Cubs fan from a suburb just outside of Chicago. And oh, he's not from Chicago. And no, and he'll tell, <laughs> and he doesn't even tell you he's from Chicago. Oh, that's good. But uh, <laughs> he was like one of those guys that you just felt bad for because being in college from 13 to 17 was like when the Cubs really started getting good in like 14, 15, 16. And they continued, I believe it was 15. This guy was so pumped for the Cubs because they had, well, obviously that young nucleus at the time that was extremely good. And they were right there and watching the NLCS where they lost to the Mets with him. He was so crushed. So I, I kind of, I felt all right for him when they finally won the world series but at the same time, it was still the Cubs. But there was a huge shift, especially in a lot of the Madison area Cub fans. For once they won in 2016, the nose just got so high up in the air. But now that guy, he's still like a, a lovable loser Cub fan. Yeah. So the ones that I don't like is like, okay, in 2015, a bunch of friends of mine were wearing Brewer shirts. Then after 2016, when the Cubs win, they're all wearing Cub shirts. I'm like, who are you? And then they're walking around like they're better. It's like, you literally were Brewers fans last year. <laughs> Like, so we have a message here from Fuller, and he says it would have been more believable for Lindblom to be put on the IL with a neck injury due to all the times he had to turn and look back for all the home runs he gave up. Yeah, Josh Lindblom, three and two-third innings pitch. He gave up nine hits, eight earned runs, three home runs. Jeez, Yeah, mister. so obviously he needs to see a chiropractor a because of, of all the uh, whiplash for turning around and watching the balls fly. Remind everyone that, yes, the Brewers beat the Cubs again. In a series, now taking six out of nine. <laughs> nice. Fly the L. Rowdy, in that game yesterday, I was out and about, and I knew the Brewers were winning one nothing, And I knew that the Brewers were eventually going to win that game because where I was at, someone on the jukebox put on the polka sensation, the Bears still suck. Cubs, Bears, Chicago, you get it. And I was like, yes, the Brewers are destined to win this game because someone just put on the Bears still suck. And right when that happened, it was uh, Omar Narvaez. There was a big strikeout, and then Narvaez threw the guy out on third, and then the Brewers had worked out of a little jam to uh, hold on to the lead and go on to the next inning. And someone at the establishment I was at was like, yeah, that Omar Narvaez, he's a great defensive catcher. Now here's the thing, though. Omar Narvaez coming in for the Milwaukee Brewers, wasn't known for his defensive catching, right? He was the hitting catcher. Yeah, his career in Seattle, he was basically a guy that 
earlier in his career, he flashed some with the stick a little bit, and then he had a big 2019 season where he graded out as one of the better hitting catchers. But on the flip side, he graded out defensively as one of, or I think he was, think was the, the worst. worst catcher in Major League Baseball in 2019. So he had quite the polar opposites when it came to hitting and, and totally. defense. So Narvaez batting 389 right now. His on-base percentage is uh, 477, slugging 574. Pretty good stick for Narvaez right there as he had two hits yesterday. Uh, but Rowdy, well, we've talked how about, about the, how about the catching prowess. Yeah, we've talked about like the guys that have been the early season surprises and or guys that have helped carry this Brewers offense. We've talked about the Travis Shaws of the world. We talked about the Billy McKinney's and these guys that have stepped up to either fill a role or to fill in for guys that are more stars that have been on the shelf. And one of the biggest things coming into this year was, okay, can we get that 2019 version of Narvaez with the stick? Narvaez is swinging the bat extremely well. You just listed off his batting average, his on-base percentage, and you know he's going good because he's getting base hits to the opposite field. Not only is he pulling the ball, but he's hitting it the other way. But like you just mentioned, how about his defense lately? Because it was killer yesterday. I know that he still has had some um, blunders blocking balls this year where, where yeah. balls got by him and got to the fence, and it's cost the Brewers a run or given up some bases. Mm-hmm. And granted, we know he's not the best defensive catcher. No, He's going to have those because he's just not that great. And you can even see the difference when he's behind the plate versus when Manny Pena. Manny Pena smothers the baseball. Narvaez is more of just a sliding straight up and hoping that ball doesn't bounce off him. He he doesn't have the the catching defensive prowess that Pena does. But my goodness, Manny Pena is the guy with the run? with the golden arm, right? Throwing yeah. out uh, would be base stealers. Narvaez is throwing out Ooh. base runners. He is now he's crushing. four out of eight for would be stealers. That's insane. Let's not check that's fifty percent, Rowdy. Fifty percent is so good. Normally if you're in the upper thirties to forty percent, you're doing a really nice job taking out would be stealing or stealers. He's at fifty percent so far, and it's almost the first full month of the season. Well, that one yesterday was sick. Cubs better struck out, and then he just slung one down the third, as just rifled it, and boom, out, and then out of the inning. And as the well. Brewers needed that because they were uh, definitely in a jam in that inning, where it was obviously they didn't score the five runs in the ninth yet. It was, was still Woody, one nothing. I think Woody was still pitching at that. No, time. I think it was, uh, was Fire, Fire Eisen. Eisen. Okay, Fire Eisen was on. Yeah, they got in a little jam, and then Narvaez, Fire Eisen, Big K, and then Fire, and then uh, Narvaez. Just rifles yeah, it down nice the third. Strike them out, throw them out. You're out. End the inning, especially when they were in a jam. It was still one nothing, and yeah, he's been killing it, dude. He's if, been looking if, nice. If he continues to play the way he is now, granted, and the just batting, think how bad he was last year. Yeah, the batting average is going to come down back down to earth. What he's batting three seventy something. That'll probably jump or drop about a hundred points. Three eighty nine, best on the team. Yeah, that that average is going to come down probably a hundred points. But as long as he can continue to hit above two seventy with a little bit of power that he's shown. And maybe, like we said, he's not the best defensive catcher when it comes to smothering balls in the dirt. But if he can continue to throw out base runners and not even at a 50% clip, but if he's at 35 or higher, the Brewers have to absolutely love what they got in year two of Omar Nervias. Yeah, I mean, it, it's already immensely better Especially than last year. Especially for a guy that's making less than $3 million. Yeah, that's been a nice... Everything's been looking pretty nice for the Brewers right now, despite, you know, no Christian Yelich in the lineup, no Lorenzo Cain. Colton Wong has come back and has looked really good coming back for Wong. My biggest question now is, 
how long can these type of players like the Travis Shaw's, the Billy McKinney's who we've started to kind of see fall off already the last week yeah, or the Omar Nervais continue to carry this team and win games. Now, a lot of that is because the starting pitching has been phenomenal, right? Mm-hmm. When you can have Brandon Woodruff, Corbin Burns, or Freddie Peralta basically give you five to seven innings, three out of every five starts where you know that there's going to be about one run or less. <laughs> It makes it easier for that offense to find a couple runs and win games two to one or three to nothing. But how long can that pitching continue to be that dominant? Now, I think Woodruff and I think Burns can be dominant the whole season. Maybe not to the extent that they are right now because they'll be a constant. Corbin Burns only has one way to go. Yeah, and that's down. (laughs) That's down because you just don't do that for 162 games. His ERA is .37. But as long as you have... Those two guys with ERAs below three. Well, look at Woody yesterday, dude. Six scoreless innings. He put his he put his ERA down to one five five. But it's the rest of the guys. Can Freddie Peralta continue to do it because he's been inconsistent in his career? Mm-hmm. It's can uh, Taylor Hauser continue or not Taylor Hauser? Adrian Hauser continue to do it because he hasn't been a hundred percent consistent in his career. Can Brett Anderson stay healthy? Remember, that's the big knock I kept saying. He's yeah. decent when he stays healthy. Well, well already in, injury. in the first month, he's got a hamstring injury. Yeah. And then the guys remember when Freddie Peralta was plugged into the starting rotation, there's like, well, we expect Josh Lindblom to eventually be a starter later on in the year. Lindblom, my God, his, what is his ERA now? Lindblom is like skyrocketed. Uh, 10.97 after he gets annihilated by the Chicago Cubs on Friday. Lynn Bloom went to the 10-day IL with water in his knee. Dude, I don't know. Basically, my biggest question is, how long can these pitchers continue to be this dominant? And again, not Burns or Woodruff, but the entire staff. Mm-hmm. How long can the bullpen be this bad? Well, and, they're getting it around, though, the bullpen. And how long can you rely on these secondary hitters? Because when you're looking at how the schedule breaks, they play 17 games in a row in this stretch. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking if they're not getting guys like Yelich and Kane and some of the players back, yep, or even now Devin Williams has come along. His last three appearances, he's looked much better, much closer to his 2020 form than his spring training and early season. So I do think the bullpen is is coming along as guys get healthy. But how long can you re- really rely on those bats as they are without Yelich, Kane? Well, that's the hope, right? Those. Bats like Yelly and Kane come back, and then they're the ones that spark it. But right now, Christian Yelich was sent back to Milwaukee from Chicago on Saturday for an MRI on his back, and it came negative. So that's a good. I think my date for for Yelich has got to be May or May tenth, because that is the that is after I believe it's after the off day for uh, that seventeen games in a row, Mm -hmm. because that's going to be a a dog of a stretch. Seventeen games in a row, and you started out by. Obviously, Anderson going on the IL, and you have Lindblom getting blown up. Like th- that just made it that much tougher. Yeah, I think you need Yelich back by May 10th. Oh my God, you need. You, he's got to come back eventually because you. Some of these guys are going to cool off if they haven't already, like the Travis Shaws. And now the, the MRI came back negative. But here's my thing: it it, st- it starts out with this is precautionary, and then a couple days later he's still out, and they're saying it's still precautionary. You know, if this was a playoff game, him, Wong, and Kane would be playing. But this is where I don't get it. It, It's now lingered for almost two weeks, and now almost two weeks in you have the MRI? Yeah, well, they they plateaued, they said. They plateaued in his recovery and his comeback. 
Uh, they plateaued. And Don't you think it would be like kind of safe just to get the MRI after like the first week, just to make sure? You would think. I mean, they plateau- he plateaued apparently in his in his training coming back. They sent him to Milwaukee for an MRI, but nothing came of it. They said everything looked fine. It's just something that's going to take a little longer. I'm still a little nervous with this. I'm Sam, because it's. I mean, that's that's your MVP. That's the face of your franchise, and now he's hasn't played since what, like April 11th? I want to say. So Yelly, it's it's concerning. He won't be activated. He had the MRI, but nothing. All right, MRI didn't show anything. Worst case scenario, say Christian Yelich is out two months, three months. How much do you think that that Brewers offense and just wins in general is going to dip because he's now been gone for that amount of time? Have they missed him though? They haven't yet, but 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 eventually it's going to. You can see guys like Shaw and McKinney who have been studs for him while he's been gone in that time frame are starting to hit their cold spells. I don't want to think about Yelly not coming back and then they start struggling. But you know it's inevitable because it's baseball. Baseball, you'll hit a cold patch, a rough patch, and that's when you want your big dogs to lift you out. It's that rough patch, and if your big dogs aren't there to lift you out, then what the hell happens? Maybe Keston Hira finds the magic again. No, he he had a good game over the weekend. It's Saturday. That he, I think Keston here is on the clock till about May fourth to see what he can do. All right, so Madison Bumgardner. Uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks lefty, he had a performance, you know, of uh, for the ages in this young season. He throws a no-no, but it's a doubleheader. It's a seven-inning game. It's not going to be counted as a no-no. And this is despite where him throwing I, this a no-no. is where I have beef with this. Now, the Major League Baseball says that officially these seven-inning doubleheaders count as official games. Correct. Correct. They do count against your record. Correct. Arizona yep. got a win. Mm-hmm. The Seven to nothing. Atlanta Braves had to take a loss. So yep. officially in the record books, it's a win for the Diamondbacks. Yes. Yes. Now, why is this not a no-hitter? Well, let me tell you, Rowdy, because I have the rules up right here, actually, from Major League Baseball. So Madison Bumgarner goes out there for seven innings, deals a no-hitter, but according to the Elias Sports Bureau, Major League Baseball's official statisticians, neither a team nor an individual pitcher will be credited with a no-no in a scheduled seven-inning game of a doubleheader unless that game goes to extras. If the contest extends to at least nine innings and that pitcher or a team's group of pitchers has still not allowed a hit, then it will go down in the history books as a no-no. Well, here's why. How does that make sense? Here's Besides the fact that they count as real games in seven innings, here's another you know, asterisks in baseball. We all know that Barry Bonds did steroids. Yep. We all know that Alex Rodriguez did steroids. Correct. I've, Barry Bonds never tested positive, quote unquote, for steroids while he was playing. Whether you like Barry Bonds or you don't like Barry Bonds, I he like does him. have the most home runs in the history of Real baseball. Real quick, do you like Barry Bonds? Yeah. I mean, I'm indifferent on him. RJ, no. I like Barry. I like I like Barry Bonds. Nineties were exciting. But anyways, but but regardless, no, we all knew he was taking steroids. Alex Rodriguez was popped for PEDs multiple, multiple times. times. They are still in the record books, but they're pretty much in the record books. And everybody that knows anything about baseball or the history of baseball 
can say that there are asterisks next to those players, even though they're in the record books. Correct. Why can't this go down as a no-hitter with an asterisk saying it was in a seven-inning doubleheader? Now, I know there's been a lot of pitchers that have went seven innings or even longer than seven innings and then gave up a hit in the eighth or the ninth and yeah. didn't get their no-hitter. Yeah. But this has to go down as a first-ever seven-inning no-hitter with an asterisk, it, in my opinion. It, like And like you say, it's an official game. It's not like... Yeah, it counts against the record. Yeah. Or for the record or against it. Or, or I saw somebody bring up, well, then give Pedro his uh, no-hitter. He went gave up a hit in the 10th inning. Yeah, but he was still in there. Yeah. He's, sorry, it's sorry. a hit. And that's and that a game went for more than nine innings. Yeah. If this game had went for eight innings because they went to extras at zero yeah. and he still threw a no-hitter, I'm still saying it's a no-hitter with an asterisk next to it. It was an eight-inning game. Yeah. So we have this, our guy J.A. Krebs, who's got two tweets. So another one I want to talk about, but this one's the most the, the one that just happened. How many pitchers have had a no-hitter through seven? Probably hundreds. That's a lot why it's, of them, a ton. That's why it's not a no-hitter. It's just dumb they're playing seven. But, Agreed that it's dumb they're playing seven. And you, you hate it for Bumgarner because you love seeing what he did. This was a guy that was a complete ace back probably what 7 years ago mm-hmm. before when the the Giants were contending for World Series like every other year with the Cardinals mm-hmm. what was it like 3 4 years in a row where it went Cardinals Giants Cardinals Giants yeah Giants won every other yeah, year yeah the Giants had the even years he yeah. was he was the <laughs> absolute horse on that team totally and he was the reason why they won those World Series he put the team on his back and I know he's had to... some some injuries he's had some weird out of baseball injuries, like wasn't it like riding ATVs <laughs> yeah, and horses yeah, horse and, and, stuff, and yeah. stuff like that? So it's nice to see a guy that has struggled the last couple of years and hasn't been healthy all of a sudden turn back the clocks and, and have a performance like that. It's just a shame that they were playing seven inning games. Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about what happened here and why it is the way that it is from a former commissioner. As Madison Bumgarner goes seven innings, a complete game in a seven, you know, double headers or seven innings, and he throws a no no, but it won't be recorded as a no no. And, and you know what else is just really sad? That was a two, obviously a double header, two seven inning games. How pitiful for the Atlanta Braves, or if you're an Atlanta <laughs> Braves fan, that you lost both of those games. And not only in 14 innings did you lose both games, you were shut out in both games. And not only were you shut out in both games, but in 14 innings you combined to have just one hit. That's brutal. Brutal. Imagine saying, well, I'm a Braves fan. I'm going to sit down on this Saturday, or I guess it was Sunday, and enjoy some some baseball. baseball. And you watch 14 (laughs) innings and your team got one hit. Yeah, you lose 5 to nothing, then 7 to nothing. We'll talk more about this. No, no, that's not a no-no. Oh, no, no. Conversation happening over this Madison Bumgarner no-no that actually isn't a no-no, but it is. But it is a no-no. So Madison Bumgarner, you know, pitcher for the Diamondbacks, it was a doubleheader. So the doubleheaders are seven innings. Major League Baseball introduced that rule last year, and they stuck with it this year. I don't really care for it. I know baseball traditionalists don't really care for it. I don't think anyone really cares for it, to be honest with you. No, and and the thing is, all the other statistics, like if a closer was going to come in and get a save. It would count towards a season total. Yeah. When when a batter hits a home run, it counts during his uh, season total. Totally. Obviously, Bumgarner got the win here, but why wouldn't it be seen as a no hitter with an asterisk? It makes no sense. So our guy J. A. Krebs says, "How many pitchers have had a no hitter through seven? Probably hundreds. That's why it's not a no hitter. It's just dumb. They're playing seven. Agreed. It is dumb. 
But at the end of the day, Major League Baseball put the rule in place that this will be seven-inning doubleheaders. Madison Bumgarner is just playing by the rules that Major League Baseball put out there. And, he threw a no-hitter. And I'm pretty sure Madison Bumgarner had comments after the start where he basically said he's glad that he threw it. Obviously, they won the game. Mm-hmm. But they wish it was nine innings because you'd wanted to see if he could get six more outs. Yeah, I have, uh, I have comments coming up from Bumgarner I'll get to, but real quick, boys. So according to Elias Sports Bureau, MLB's official statistician, neither a team nor an individual pitcher will be credited with a no-no in a scheduled seven-inning game of a doubleheader unless the game goes to extras. So if the contest extends to at least nine innings, that pitcher or a team's group of pitchers has still not allowed a hit, then it will go down in the history books as a no-no. So they explain further, this ruling stems from a 1991 decision in which then-commissioner Faye Vincent declared that no hitters must span at least nine innings. So check this out, though. Bumgarner, he has become the first pitcher to work seven no-hit innings under the doubleheader rules that have been in place since last year. So his efforts will go down in the history books as a complete game and a shutout. But But not not a a no-hitter. Despite it going down as a complete game and a shutout. So already that rule from 1991 is obsolete. Yes. Because this is an official complete game at seven innings. It's not like he got pulled. It's an officially a complete now, game. Full disclosure, yeah, I, don't I get think it. I think the seven inning games are stupid. Yes. I think absolutely. that runners starting on second base are stupid. Correct. In extra innings. But if that's the rule, then that's a no hitter. Yeah. It's now granted if you want to put an asterisk by it, put an asterisk by it. I'm fine with and, that. And it wasn't nine innings. But by the rules of the game, it was a completed game. It was a standard seven-inning doubleheader. Yep. How is it not a no-hitter? It's it is it, like, and the MLB is pointing to a rule from 1991. Yeah. When this wasn't a thing. Yeah. Well, I'm <laughs> yeah. gonna point to the rule that was 2020 that says this is a full game. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it goes down as a complete full game, just not a no-hitter. Right. It's uh, it's pretty crazy. And it's uh, that's that's where. The seven inning games and the runners on second and extra innings, it's frustrating because baseball is a game of history. It is a game where we talked about they started keeping stats 10 years after the Civil War. (laughs) It's all about statistics with making the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. And the Hall of Fame is probably the hardest one to get into. They started keeping hitting stats nine years. It was 10 10 years years for the pitching staff. But still, I mean... That's how long these stats have been around. Let me ask you guys this. So um, Bumgarner would have had a perfect game if it wasn't in the second inning when Nick Ahmed's second inning throwing error happened. No one would have. Then he retired 17 Braves hitters. So (laughs) would it have been a perfect game? Let's say say there's no throwing error and he mows down everybody. Yeah. Would it have been a perfect game then? No, not according to the MLB. And then you go one one further, though, and you look at just the history of baseball and, and how pitchers are being used now. How many guys? It was. It used to be like the benchmark to get into the Hall of Fame was you had to win 300 games if you're a starting pitcher. Yeah. yeah. In what world will guys like Clayton Kershaw or or even Corbin Burns or Brandon Woodruff? Now Brandon Woodruff and, and Corbin Burns probably hit the scene a little late to be close to 300 if they pitched like in yeah. the 80s. Yeah, that's not happening. Yeah. But Clayton Kershaw was the man and got to the big leagues at 1920. Yeah. There's there's no reason why. In if he had come up in the seventies or eighties, that he wouldn't be flirting with three hundred wins. Right. Yeah. But but he's not going to get to three hundred wins. You look at yeah. some of the best pitchers in the last ten years that are close. It's like Jamie Moyer. Well, the guy played till he was like almost fifty. 
<laughs> and or or it's like CC Sabathia had like 200 and some wins. But that's because he was willing to play on three or four days rest. What's Verlander and, at 226 he, right now? Exactly. Justin Verlander is one of the better pitchers of this generation Granky's that, that has been playing the past 20 years. Yeah. He's not sniffing 300 yeah. wins. If you stay by that statistic of 300 wins makes you a guaranteed uh, Hall of Famer, none of those guys are Hall of Famers, but yet they were the best pitchers in their 20 or 20 years of baseball. All right, Rowdy, but back to Madison Bumgarner. The dude should have a no-no under his belt. He's not going to get one just because it's a seven-inning game, despite Major League Baseball setting those rules. Here is Madison Bumgarner comments uh, from the pitcher after the game. Here you go. Uh, it feels good. Uh, I just want to. I want to. I want to say two things. Then I'm going to go celebrate with the guys. I want to thank these shadows in Atlanta. They helped me out a good bit. That's pretty awesome. And I want to thank Rob Manfred for making these seven inning games. All right. And then he drops the mic and he leaves. I want to thank these uh, shadows here and uh, Rob Manfred for uh, making these seven inning games. But he should go down as having a no no, Rowdy. Instead, he gets a complete game and. Uh, and I just don't get it. So Bumgarner becomes the first pitcher to work seven no-hit innings under the doubleheader rules that have been in place since last year. He goes a complete game and a shutout. So my question is, Bumgarner almost had a perfect game if it wasn't for a throwing error from Nick Ahmed uh, in the second inning. If he throws, if that doesn't happen, he has a perfect game, does that go down as a perfect game then? No, because if it's not going down as a no-hitter, then it's not going down as a perfect game. God, could you imagine the controversy? I mean, there's already controversy with this, but if it was a perfect game, geez. So, I don't know. There you go. I guess Major League Baseball really can't help themselves when it comes to certain things. It should be a no-no, but instead it's a shutout and a complete game. (laughs) Make it make sense. All right, Rowdy, that's weird unwritten rules, right? How about unwritten rules? As over the weekend, Fernando Tatis Jr. was an absolute monster. Tatis Jr., uh, the game before when uh, he took Trevor Bauer deep twice, the game before he did something, it was uh, one night after he homered twice. It was one night he homered twice on the 22-year anniversary of his father, belting two grand slams in the same inning from Dodger Stadium. He then would hit two home runs. Off of Trevor Bauer. You, I mean, you saw this, right? Well, that was pretty cool. You know who the first pitcher was that he went deep off of twice. Who was the who Clayton was, Kershaw? Oh yeah, Kershaw. And then it was Bauer. So Tatis Jr. earning that huge contract uh, that he signed. He is just crushing it. So Rowdy in the second game, uh, the first home run he hits off of Trevor Bauer as he's going towards second. Once the ball's already out, he puts his hand over one of his eyes. And he turns around and he looks at Bauer. And that's in um, celebration of Bauer, who sometimes pitches with one eye closed. So he looked at Bauer and he put the hand over his eyes, pimped his home run, and then, you know, went to home base, got his run, and then he came up again off of Trevor Bauer. And this time he flipped his bat in a big celebration, big bat flip. It was awesome. And then, you know, when Connor McGregor would win his fight, and he'd do that little yeah, that the walk little Conor McGregor walk where he'd shake his arms and his uh, shoulders, and he'd you know that cocky walk. Well, Tatis Jr. did that when he crossed home plate after his second home run. He did the Conor McGregor because you know why he did that. Why did he do that? Because when Trevor Bauer strikes people oh, yeah, out and he Bauer walks off that. the mound, yeah. he does the Conor McGregor walk off the mound. So Bauer does that. Yeah, good point, Rowdy. Um, so when Bauer has a dominant inning, he'll do the Conor McGregor dance off the mound. So Tatis Jr. covers one eye in his first home run, pimps it, and then in his second home run. Big bat flip, pimps it hard, and then does the Conor McGregor on the cock of the walk, you know, dance. So normally, what would you think if uh, 
it was uh, any other team. Like, take Trevor Bauer out of the equation because Bauer has complete comments that are mind-blowing to me. Usually what? Next up, someone's getting plunked, right? If you're bat-flipping, if you're pipping home runs, isn't someone going to get plunked for standing up a pitcher? See, I think when you're doing stuff like this, you have to... Back it up? No, you have to be careful with who you're doing it to. You know, it's like uh, you you have like certain groups of friends where you can say things to. Yes. But then if you're hanging out with other certain groups of friends, you probably shouldn't say some of those things. Yes. It's like that for me. It's like if you know Trevor Bauer is a guy that is going to, as you would say, like pimp that he struck you out mm-hmm. or kind of do those type of things. Because he celebrates. Yeah. Bauer does. Then I feel like it's okay to do it to them. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. if you have like an old school guy that if he strikes you out, he just graciously walks off the mound. I feel like it's that uh, common respect. Yeah. Where like I'm just out here doing my job. Yeah. Where you're not, if you hit one off of him for a game winner, you don't necessarily. I still understand a little bit of a bat flip because it's the excitement. You just won the big game, yeah. But you don't completely show him up. See, I like the bat. I like bat flips. I like when okay, did guys you see, that hit home runs. Did you see Trevor Story's bat flip against the Phillies this weekend? No, where was it was it a, a huge. Was he like it was a huge home it? run that that gave him the win. He came through. He hit the home run. He's right-handed hitter. Hit the home run and he instantly like did the bat flip just and then he it? did like like the little like kind of like a type of a flex like with the, the emotion. Flex, fist pump, but then yeah. he got on with his home run. Mm-hmm. Like I'm fine with that. But where I draw the line was like Contreras because he's already being a d bag. Oh, Wilson Contreras. He he, he pauses <laughs> after hitting it, watches it, then he chucks the bat, then he slow down to first base, and then he starts doing the shushes to everybody. Yeah, like that was excessive. You know what I'm saying? Like yep. that was over the top excessive, especially for that type of situation when no one was throwing at you. Mm-hmm. Like if if um, we'll say Brandon Woodruff was on the mound and he had struck out Wilson Contreras three times and started you know talking crap to him yeah. and showing him up. If Contreras then hit the game winner off of Woodruff or later in that inning, I get it because it was going both ways. Mm-hmm. But if you're if you're doing more than just like a celebratory little bat flip in motion, okay. So let's say I Trevor, feel like you're just showing them up. Let's say Trevor Bauer is not on the mound, and I have comments from Trevor Bauer coming up about you know Tatis Jr. pimping him not once but twice. If it's any other pitcher and Tatis Jr. you know does what he did, is he getting plunked next time he's up third time around? Like should there be retaliation or is like for fans out there? You say, hey, don't even do it. Just take the high road. No showboating. Like our guy Bill Cowan says, no showboating. Acting like it's another day at the office is the best insult. See, I feel like I'm middle of the road here when it comes to... I like the celebrations. When it comes to, like, celebrating and showing other people up, I'm middle of the road. I know some people absolutely hate it. It's a case-by-case basis for you, right? And other people, they're all for it. I love the bat flip. I love pimping home runs. Obviously, if it's like Wilson Contreras against the Brewers, I'm peeved. But I would say the same vein, don't give up the home run. I just take it as if I was on the mound pitching and I wasn't showing you up or never really did anything big, and all of a sudden you started doing it to me, you might catch one. All right, Because so, I'm not going to let you show me up like that. Rowdy, we're three sleeps away from the NFL's draft. Thursday in Ohio, Cleveland, a.k.a. Believe Land, as Brian Gutekunst and the Packers have 10 picks. Goody is first pick at number 29. And my guy Rowdy on Friday told me I am going to be devouring the NFL draft over the weekend. So, Rowdy, the question is, 
besides watching some Brewers games. And you said you're going to go, you know, was it breaking the weather at Anchor Inn? But I don't think you did that. Instead, you opted to do, did you opt into the draft consuming over the weekend? Yeah, so I, Friday night, I took it pretty easy. I stayed in. I absolutely, outside of that uh, Brewers-Cubs game in the afternoon, just completely dove headfirst into the NFL draft. And then Saturday afternoon was all NFL draft, and then Sunday night was all NFL draft. So I've... I'm probably at double digit hours that I put in. Well, I over saw this the week. I saw the notebook that you brought in. Lots with you. of reading. How many pages did you write your chicken scratch on there? That is like it's like a beautiful mind, Russell Crowe scribbling over it's the basically walls. Basically, right now at three full pages of yeah, my chicken scratch. It's like when Charlie Day and it's always sunny in Philadelphia is trying to find Pepe Silva in the mailroom that he's like going crazy on that uh, that board of his shades of a beautiful mind. But Rowdy is really diving in, and rightfully so. The draft Thursday night. That's when it starts. So, Nelson, in your chicken scratch and everything you've done, Packers do have 10 picks. They have pick number 29 in the first round. And you have, it, it, with your chicken scratch, you were telling me a little bit about you know, what you think will be available for the Packers in that 29th pick if they don't trade up you know, back or forward. But what do you think is going to happen there for the Green Bay Packers? Well, we all know that you would imagine that the positions they'd be having to take a look at has to be offensive line. Mm-hmm. It has to be wide receiver, it has to be defensive line, and it probably has to be corner. Correct. You would say those would be the four main position groups yeah, I would agree with that, that they would be selecting from. They're not going to take a quarterback. At least you well, wouldn't think so. You don't think so, but... They're not going to take a running back. Obviously, fullback, no. But you get what I'm saying. Yeah. It's got to be the four positions, the main four. Offense and defensive line, wide receiver, or corner. Now, remember, we thought the same thing last year. That's like, okay, they need a weapon, they need a wide receiver, they need this, and they ended up getting... Jordan Love. So it's like a crapshoot. But Rowdy, looking at it, what's the position you dialed in on most for the Green Bay Packers at pick 29? Was it defense? So I I started out with trying to, well, I'm going to go through every single position. Mm-hmm. And this is, I don't do a big board. Like I don't do a top 100 guys. I don't do a mock draft for the first round or whatever. I go through, read all the profiles, watch some videos, and I'll pick out guys that I think I would like to see the Packers draft when they're drafting. So I'll have guys, you know, from basically the mid first round to undrafted free agents Mm -hmm. that I will list them down. So I don't have every single name that's out there or available because if I was reading their bio and watched not film, I'm not here sitting there with like a projector, (laughs) little clips here and there. Sure, Sure. It's mostly bios between three different sites. And whatever I like from those type of traits, if I think that uh, that would interest me with the Packers in that position, then that's who I get. I write down. Okay, so uh, looking here, I was doing a little research so it's over still the weekend. A lot of reading. Oh, yeah, hell yeah, it is. I was doing a little reading over the weekend as well, and I saw a lot of uh, cornerbacks connected to the Packers in that pick number twenty nine. And the one I've seen the most, the kid out of Northwestern, Greg Newsom the second. They say it looks like a perfect scheme fit, yada, yada, yada. Did he fall on your – I don't know you don't have a big board, but did he fall on your list, your chicken scratch? He actually didn't make it. He he didn't make my list. I know a lot of people like Newsom. When I was doing the reading, I just found some things that kind of sparked my interest where I'm like, I don't know if that will necessarily, necessarily something that I am looking for or would want, 
But I mean, it's all preference, right? Yeah. I mean, the skinny on him, the, the, the one concern, I guess, is durability concerns for Newsom the second, as he uh, has tremendous fit, they say, of Joe Barry in his perimeter corner and type of player that checks all the usual boxes, but it's the health. And uh, what about the size and the athleticism? But who did you have then won the cornerback position for the Packers? Well, like one of the guys that I really liked, but I don't think he's going to be there for the Packers is Caleb Farley. He was a former wide receiver at at Virginia Tech, and they turned him into a corner. He was a guy. He's got great ball skills. He's obviously fast. He runs a 4-3. Damn. Only played two years in corner, but like he was a former receiver. He's got good, like I said, good ball skills. Mm -hmm. And he definitely fights in coverage for it. I just don't know if he's going to be there. He's projected in the middle first round. Another corner that I actually liked, familiar name, Asante Samuel Jr. Yeah. Obviously, his his father played in the NFL, played for the Patriots. Asante Samuel played for the Eagles. He was a guy that I actually liked his profile more than Newsom. And he, he's kind of... He's kind of the the smaller, grittier player. He's listed at five ten, a buck eighty. I mean, he's got a, a ton of talent as well. Obviously, to play at a high level in college at five ten, one eighty. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a guy that's willing to go up and tackle, even though he's not very big. He's got the ability and the good uh, athletic frame. I mean, it kind of goes hand in hand with look at who his dad is, right? <laughs> and I then you'd like have an athletic frame too. I mean, he's a guy that ran a four four. That's and crazy. he also fast. had a ton of pass breakups in college and was in, in tight coverage. Now his biggest thing is being short and being thin. And spending not in too much time at the position. Two two years you said, right? No, that was Farley. Oh, Far- excuse me, Farley. My bad. But but Sam- biggest thing biggest knocks on Samuel is that he's short and he's thin, being 5'10 a buck 80, but he's a guy that is willing to put his nose in there make some tackles because we've seen that with Kevin King, right? Yes. Decent cover guy, but he's not skinny. Too, he's not too willing to go tackle the football. Maybe it's because he's too skinny. Never get on that Wisconsin diet. But one of the comps that Asante Samuel Jr. is getting is Jair Alexander because he is feisty. Oofta. He is going to be a guy that's going to play up and play tight coverage, but he is that undersized type player. Okay. That was, that was the other, those were probably the two corners that, might potentially be there for the Packers. Farley, if he fell, and Asante Samuel Jr. could potentially be there in the late first, early second. So that might be... So would you say that the cornerback with the pick number 29 is a sexy pick or an unsexy I would, pick? I would say for Packer fans, it would be a sexier yeah. pick, right? I think because a cornerback not, would be a sexy pick. It's not an offensive or defensive lineman. Yeah, I think that would be a sexy pick. How about this for unsexy, though? It's something I think the Packers are going to do, unsexy pick. Uh, offensive tackle, pick number 29 in the first round. I see, uh, what, Tevin Jenkins out of Oklahoma State being tied a lot to the Packers. Size, power, movement, ability. Uh, he operates a lot like Brian Bulaga from my readings, and uh, he could do the same. Uh, the Jenkins did as Bulaga did. Tested like an elite athlete and plays like a bully is things I were reading. I was jotting down some notes. Uh, did he fall on your list? Or, and if not, who did fall on your list for an offensive tackle? Yeah, offensive tackle, I had Christian Dereshaw. Again, he's projected in the middle first. Might not be a guy that falls to the Packers. He's kind of in the Caleb Farley corner where he'll probably be gone, but if he did happen to fall, that's a guy that I wouldn't mind the Packers taking. Mm -hmm. And another tackle, see, I didn't really have a ton of tackles that I love that were projected in that late first, early second. You could second. find value in the second Yeah, day. a lot of the guys that I liked were more second, 
or later. Okay, well, let's Outside move. of their shot. Because you look at, you can't have the top couple offensive no, tackles because they're already yeah, going to be, be gone. All right, so let's go. That was unsexy. Let's go sexy again. And something was on your list. And I think a lot of Packer fans are waiting for it to happen because it's been two years since Brian Gutekunst has even done it. And let's draft a wide receiver. Uh, you know, some of my readings out of Ole Miss, Elijah Moore, uh, he was on there. It's. Um, you know, production and athleticism. He's a good fit as an all-slot or a gadget weapon in the Packers' offense. Uh, what do you think about wide receiver for pick number 29 if the Packers were to do it? Yeah, I think, obviously, Jalen Waddle is a big-time guy out of Alabama. He's going to be a guy that goes in the middle round. Obviously, you'd love to see him if fall to 29, but it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, guys, Elijah Moore was a big one for me. He was, was, he, okay. he was number one on my list for guys that were probably more realistic. Mm-hmm. Well, he's Obviously, like that slot, the slot gadget guy. He, but he's tough in there. Like that guy runs mad. I like and, a and mad you love, runner. You love to see it though. He's he's tough. He's got good hands, and he's extremely quick. He's a guy that'll be able to work into the slot. I know there's been some comps that were uh, comparable to, I believe, Randall Cobb. Yeah, I've seen Tyler Lockett. They said some have compared his skill set to Antonio Brown. Uh, as well, I don't know about that one, but I think he'd be. But a nice he looks fit. extremely quick. He looks like a guy that obviously he's going to have to play in the slot because he's only at five eight. Mm-hmm. But he's got good hands. He can make uh, catches down the field and at the line of scrimmage. And and I just like that he runs mad when he gets the ball in his hand. Like he is a physical runner for being a smaller guy. The other one that's on there uh, that I had were were two: Terrence Marshall Jr. and Rondell Moore. Those yeah, are, Rondell Moore. Rondell Moore is kind of like, at this point, the lesser experienced, more, uh, more oft injured Elijah Moore at this point. Mm-hmm. Just because we saw, we we as Badger fans got to see what, what Rondell Moore did when he was a freshman. But then since then, he has had some injuries. He hasn't necessarily been a guy that was developed for downfield routes. It was they got him the ball at the line of scrimmage the most of the time or figured out ways to get him the football. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know. I mean, if I had to pick one or the other, I'd rather go Elijah Moore 100%. Did you have any uh the Minnesota's Rashad Bateman falling on your list at all? No, I didn't. I I passed on him. Why'd you pass him? I mean, Bateman, a lot of people high on Bateman. Yeah, I know. Cuz he's a freak athlete. Bateman was a guy that is up there, but I feel like for me when I read his profile, I felt like the hype for Bateman might might not exactly be what I personally am hoping the Packers draft, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, we don't have Brian Gutekun's, you know, brain here and we're dissecting it to know what he's going to do, but yeah. Uh okay, because, well, I'm like I'm thinking yes. if you're if you're the Packers, you have Devontae Adams who if he's not the best wide receiver, he's one of the best. Mm-hmm. You have MVS who's going to be the guy that takes the top off the defense running deep routes downfield. Yep. And then you have steady uh Alan Lazard and then you'll have another steady possession receiver in Devin Funches and then you have St. Brown if he can stay healthy. I think they need more of a slot guy. Yeah, they don't really. Now, granted if a top stud receiver falls, then obviously you have to take him. But I think at this point if you're not looking for a guy that can take the top off the defense, or, or a slot, I don't know if you're drafting receiver. <laughs> okay, so there's a sexy pick. Now let's go kind of unsexy again. And you had defensive line there as, as well as I have linebackers. Linebacker? Okay, let's go linebacker then. Uh, there's the linebacker. They keep linking this guy. Is it uh, Collins out of – where is he? Is he Tulsa? Tulsa. Yeah, I've seen that so many times the Packers linked it. Is it Zavin? Yep. Zavin Collins out of Tulsa, who's a guy that skyrocketed up a ton of boards – 
but he's green. I don't think he fell on your list, though, if I remember no, you he, telling me. he didn't. So remember when we were talking about him briefly? I hadn't done any research when we were briefly talking about Mox like a couple weeks ago. Yeah, he, he rose up over the, the weird season and, that was last year. And when you were you were reading off some of the stuff, I said he kind of reminds me of, of Blake, Blake Martinez. Martinez. I think that comp is completely wrong. I think that was way off after reading a lot of his. He's way more athletic and faster than Blake Martinez. Because yeah, weren't they saying like he's like Blake Martinez, but just slow? But I don't think he's actually yeah, he, slow. From what I'm, from what I read, it, he looks like he's much more able to run sideline to sideline. But the guy that I actually preferred more than Zayvon Collins was Jamin Davis out of Kentucky. Out of Kentucky. He was only a one-year starter, only had 11 starts. They say a potential impact inside linebacker at the next level. But just reading his profile and watching some of the videos on him, he just looks so raw to me that it's like if you want to take, a obviously, a lottery pick in the first round where you're looking for potential, I love what I saw from Davis from, from his profiles. Now, what if he was drafted at 12 like Rashawn Gary was? Then it would be a hell of a reach, but I'm because right now Davis is projected to be a late first, early second. But I love that he's extremely raw. He's green, so you have a lot more to mold with him. But at the same time, his lateral quickness is off the charts. His explosiveness is off the charts, and his really his big knocks are he's a year one starter. He'd only started one year at Kentucky, and the other thing was he's a little green when it comes to coverage. But from his uh, co- from his coverage snaps, it looks like he is serviceable in coverage. He's not going to be great. But the biggest thing for me is he's explosive. He can run sideline to sideline, and he's, he's got his head on a swivel. He's instinctive, which I love. And it sounds like the coverage could come. Is he first one in, last one out? High motor. I'm just trying to think of all the. Uh, I mean, he tested in as one of the most athletic linebackers since 1987, since they started doing the RAS system uh, testing. His athleticism and length make him a disruptive player against the run, and there's a real chance he'll eventually be good in the passing game at the next level. Yeah, he was ranked as the 15th most athletic linebacker since they started doing those. Those tests keeping track. I will talk more draft coming up with our guy Thor Nystrom. NBC Sports, Rotowire. He's going to join us at 935. So there's a just a quick peek in to the upcoming draft on Thursday night. Rowdy hasn't even scratched the surface of his chicken scratch that I'm looking at on his notebook yet. Now, we're excited for the NFL draft, right? But I think this cat right here is the most excited I've ever seen anyone of the draft. I'm looking at Thor Nystrom's Twitter account, and it says, It's Monday. It's NFL draft on Thursday. It's 3 a.m. I'm so geeked I can't sleep. Thor, good morning. Good morning. Uh, I, I didn't end up getting much sleep last night, but I'm I'm ready to go. Still juiced up. Is this like, a, you know, like growing up as a kid, it's like Christmas Eve and you can't wait to open up Santa's presents the next day. Is this like this for you, but like times 100? A thousand. Well, technically it's times 256 this year, I think. <laughs> 259, but yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, Thor, I'm looking at this, man, and oh, I got Nelson over here. He was doing some chicken scratch over the weekend with uh, who he thought the Packers could dial in on, but I'm looking at your Twitter account, and I see your complete breakdown of NFL draft position rankings, more than 600 ranked players on NBCSports.com. My God, how long did that take you? 
Uh, a lot, and the uh, it, it took me all spring, and it's you know then then at the end you know you got them all ranked, and you, you know you got all their information, and you feel good about that, and then it was coming up with six hundred comps. Uh, that 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 became another bear, but uh, fortunately, I've always been obsessed with this, and, and especially comps. I, I just love it. a lot of people that have my job hate them, but I I love them because I love to read them. You know, so I'm happy to take the time to to put those in. Now, I don't necessarily, I know I don't put in nearly the time that you and other professionals like you do, but I love for about a week and a half just diving in to all these analysis and profiles and bios and a little bit of clips here and there. And I have to say this because we got to, you know, butter our guest up before we really get into it. I have to. You are top two for my favorite guys to consistently go to. It's just a pleasure to honestly read the breakdowns with uh, how you kind of word things. And I don't know if you're number two. <laughs> so you're <pretty> number one. <laughs> Thor, well, some, I, some I really appreciate that. That makes my day. All right, Thank brother. You. So let's dive in. Thor Nystrom joining us right now. Follow him on Twitter at ThorKU, NBC Sports Edge, as well as RotoWorld.com. Thor, I mean, we hyper-focused in. We had you last year, and, and we love the insights you brought. So we're like, we got to get this cat back on. By the way, my last name starts with a T-H-O-R. So nice to have, oh, two, nice to have two Thors here, baby. So Thor, there let's you go. dive into the Packers, my man, if you can uh, you know, dive into that brainy yours of all the other 600 names but pick number 29 in the first round for the green bay packers i know you probably got a couple floating around who do you think the packers should dial in on that 29th pick well you know last year we we said receiver 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 and <laughs> if i'm if if i'm the packers I, I got a couple names on the short list and if one of them gets to me i'm taking them uh but they didn't do that last year um but you know that's that would certainly be you know the top of my priority list. And then you know if if you don't like the the receiver there, um, you know you could look at defense, up ball linebacker. Of course, is a is a popular position. I know there. Um, so, but I, I think you're going to have options either way. You know, um, so, you know. Again, receiver is where I would look. Uh, Elijah Moore would be Elijah Moore would dominate with Aaron Rodgers. He, he's the exact kind of receiver that that Rodgers need. I comp him to Antonio Brown. He's a he's a guy that played the slot for Ole Miss and just dominated last season for Lane Kiffin, um, but he could he could play the outside potentially because he's got the ball skills. Certainly has the athleticism for it. Um, I think he would be a really good fit. I, I wouldn't. It, well, as a Vikings fan, I I would like the Packers to take Kadarius Tony, but uh, I I wouldn't suggest <laughs> it. Uh, he, he doesn't you know especially for Rodgers because you know Rodgers he doesn't have any accuracy issues to any level of the field. He can get it wherever you want to go. Uh, Kadarius Tony, like ninety percent of his catches in college came within like four yards of the line of scrimmage, and his his contested catch rate. If you look at that against his clean catch rate, it, it drops off like crazy. Um, he doesn't he, he, his ball skills uh, really suffer when he's not when he doesn't have a little halo around him. Mm-hmm. And so I I really doubt his ability to turn into a quality NFL receiver. You know that that transcends sort of that manufactured touch thing. So, so for me, if I'm the Packers, it'd probably be Elijah Moore is who I, I would be sitting on. Uh, Terrace Marshall would be another option, but he's got the leg thing, which concerns me just a little bit. But, you know, like I bumped him from late first to early second because of that. Um, but he's another option for sure. Uh, Thor, no, you, are you in Minneapolis right now? Are you in Minnesota? I am. Uh, yep. And you're a Vikings fan. Of it. Yeah, that sparks my memory now. Are you also are you an Iowa Hawkeyes fan and a Gophers, Minnesota Golden Gophers fan, or just a, how's that work? Yeah, I am, a, and I know that that's bizarre, but I, I grew up hating um, – well, I grew up hating the, the Badgers, of course, as well, <laughs> um, but the Hawkeyes as well. I absolutely loathe them. 
um, at, you know, because my dad had gone to Minnesota and everything like that. And obviously all my friends were golfer fans and stuff like that. But I got into grad school at Iowa. So then I, I of course, had to become a Hawkeye fan, but I couldn't give up the golfers. So, so on the golfers, um, yeah, thing, that's why I bring it up, Thor, is what about Rashad Bateman? Because I see Bateman connected occasionally in some mocks with the Packers. Is that something that could work for the green and gold? Absolutely. Yeah. The only reason I didn't mention him is because I think he's going to go above that. Yeah. But there are a lot of people in my industry that disagree with me. Uh, Bateman's one of those weird kind of guys. Like I've had him as locked in as the, you know, you have the top three guys, obviously. And then for me, he has been four. Like, you know, I, you know, in a little bit of a drop after him. Um, and, but, you know, other people, again, they, they disagree. You know, some people have Kadarius Tony up there and, and, and stuff like that. And Bateman did measure in shorter um, and lighter than, than he was in college. But if he gets down uh, to, to the Packers, yeah. I mean, you talk about another guy that would dominate with Roger. He, he's a little bit of a different player, of course. Um, Bateman is uh, – he, he's locked in as the X, the, the outside guy. Yeah. Last year, the Gophers tried to push him into the slot to, to take over for Tyler Johnson. He, he didn't play quite as well, but, he, you know, he still played solid. But outside in 2019 as a 19-year-old – he dominated the Big Ten with, with not a very good quarterback. Yeah. Gets separation, route running, gets off the line, ball skills, everything you would want to dominate with Rodgers. Thor from joining us right now, breaking it down, NBC Sports Edge as well as WorldWorld.com. So uh, let's do a little linebacker talk here. So my guy Nelson over here had a linebacker that he thought was a good fit, and that was, uh, was that Jamin Davis yeah, out of Jamin Kentucky? Yeah, Davis. Love the kids and upside. And Thor, I've seen the Packers linked a lot of this guy out of Tulsa, Zayvon Collins as well. Uh, could those names work for the Packers? If not, who would you have, like maybe a linebacker that uh, Brian Gutekunst should look at? Yeah, I, th- I think both those guys would be in range there for sure. Um, it was funny as I actually talked with Delson about about, and I in my head I call him Jammin Davis so I can do the Bob Marley thing, but that's of course not how you pronounce it. Too. Exactly. Yeah, I, I like sing that to myself as I'm digging for cobs for the you know number four hundred guy or whatever. Uh, but but yeah, like you know, he's between the late first and the early second. Like I was telling Nelson off air, it's. He reminds me a lot of Willie Gay from last year as an SEC linebacker who's just super-duper athletic that you had limited tape on. Willie Gay, it was for a different reason, uh, academic problems, that he punched up the starting quarterback one time. Oh, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's, as far as jamming goes, like, he, uh, uh, you know, like his first couple of years, you know, he was sort of developing, and then, you know, this year he just, you know, blew up when he, when he got on the field. But it's a very similar thing of – um, you know, the frame, it, really nice frame and ludicrous athleticism with it. And, you know, I, I like those, the really athletic linebackers that flash, you know, over at least a season sample size and coverage. I, I really, really like that because, you know, where the NFL is going, you want those guys to be able to, to cover, you know, for instance, move tight ends and, and stuff like that. Um, and, and, and Davis is certainly going to do that in the same way that, that Willie Gay did. But the difference between the two is, Willie Gay had, I mean, first of all, I, I think Davis is a little bit better, you know, the, 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 you know, just talent wise, just slightly better, maybe 5% better, but the, the off field stuff, he doesn't got it. Right. And so the, the risk factor is not as high. And so whereas whereas Willie Gay went late second round to the, the chiefs last season, um, I think Davis is, he's either going to go early second or, or he's going to slip into the late first. I think he would make a lot of sense for the Packers. You mentioned Collins as well. Collins would be the guy if you wanted to, um, if you just want to take the single, you know, mm-hmm. Davis, you're, you're swinging from the heels. You're trying to hit a grand slam with that pick, um, with, with Collins, he's going to be a long time starter and he's going to be very solid. I think where people, you know, get disappointed in Collins is like, 
you look at how big he is and how athletic he is, and you wanted him in the G5 to just absolutely, like, you know, just blow people up, you know, just feel, you know, <laughs> sort of like Bobby Boucher or something like that. Bobby Boucher. He, he wasn't quite that, but he is, like, you know, an enormous physical specimen, first off, and again, very athletic, and he has a very well rounded game. So he, he takes care of the trash, basically. You know, he takes care of business and stuff like that. But Davis is a guy that if, if he hits his ceiling, you're going to have a, a linebacker that could do literally everything. You know, the, the, the coverage, the sideline to sideline, everything. Get after the quarterback, whatever you want. I know this fits my narrative since I'm a Davis over Collins fan, but chicks do dig the long ball. <laughs> hey, um, what what about this? I know we're uh, you know talking to Packers stuff, but I want to take a, a step back here. And it's everyone what sells tickets, what put butts in the seats, what do they build franchises around? Quarterbacks, right? Uh, Trevor Lawrence, obviously the number one. I saw earlier today, I think it was maybe last night actually for me in Rappaport, saying that the Niners were focusing in on Mac Jones or now Trey Lance. What's the big board for Thor Nystrom, the top five quarterbacks? And then I have a follow up question about Justin Fields. Uh, so what's the top five for quarterbacks looking like for you, Thor? Yeah, so for me, it's Lawrence Fields, uh, Lance Wilson at four, and then Mac Jones at five. And by the way, I, I you know I tweeted this out this morning. I think San Francisco is going to take Trey Lance. And, and by the way, I, I think that that's the reason they moved up. This is complete conjecture on my part, but it doesn't make any sense. I mean, first of all, it doesn't make any sense to, to trade three first routers and a third router to move into the top three to take Mac Jones, who's by any measure at best a mid first round pick um it, that doesn't make any sense but to, to leak that you were going to do that in the moment you know like adam Schefter was reporting that uh peter king came close to reporting that, that the, the 49ers are going to take mac jones it, it doesn't make any sense to tell those guys that right it, unless you're not going to do it you know sort of like miami last year in the process when you started here a month before the draft oh they don't like Tua. they actually prefer justin herbert and it's like okay, I've known for a year that Miami loves Tua, you know, and and so in, in this case too, it, it was it was something that didn't like pass the smell test. San Francisco could still go up there, you know, and, and take Mac Jones, but I, I I I'll continue to say it. I'll believe that Mac Jones is the third pick when Roger Goodell pulls the card out and reads it. <laughs> Thor, I completely agree with you, and I read your quarterback takes. Obviously, Lawrence is one. I'm so thankful that you're a Fields truther. Yeah, let me ask you this. So many people I see out there think he's a running quarterback and he can't throw the football, and that's just literally nonsense because they never watched him play. Yeah, it's almost – in fact, that's almost the reverse of what the case is. The (laughs) the criticism of Justin Fields is that he is – he almost wants to be a pocket passer too much. He will sit back there. He's got these world-class legs. And he'll sit in the pocket as long as he needs to, you know, for, for the, the route to develop. That is something that, that we're going to have to work on. Um, this past season when Ohio State was ravaged by COVID, which, again, another thing that people don't talk about, they, they want to depict, you know, Justin Fields for things that don't actually exist in reality. But the <laughs> things that actually did, they don't bring them up. Ohio State was one of the hardest hit teams in the, in the nation, not, not, not just, you know, in the Big Ten, not just in the Power Five. In the entire nation, they were one of the hardest hit teams by, by COVID. They had so many cancellations of games that they were disqualified for participating in the Big Ted title game until the uh, the power brokers yeah. of the Big Ted got together and said, "Hey, we, we need to get some money. We, we, <laughs> we, we got to put that back in." But but anyway, you know, there was one game, the Michigan State game. They were down to one active starting offensive lineman in that game against Northwestern, the Big Ten title game. Northwestern had top three pass defense. 
Uh, Chris Olave didn't play in that game, the number one receiver, obviously. And Jackson Nigbo didn't play either. He's their number three receiver. So, like, and I could go on and on and on. Those are just two examples. A head coach missed a game, yeah. multiple assistants missed other games. 20-plus players were out for multiple games. They only played seven or eight. So, you know, what he did, um, you know, this season, last season, too, what he did over his whole career after coming in as, as one of the great dual-threat quarterback recruits of all time, a top three of all time. You know, he came in in the same class as Lawrence. Yeah. If Lawrence was, you know, one of the top three, you know, pocket passers of all, you know, I think, I think that was his designation. Justin Fields was just as high as a dual threat, and he, he didn't just meet expectations in college. He exceeded them. Yeah. Hey, Thor, we appreciate your time, brother. And if you can hear it, I got some Bob Marley jamming on for you. I think uh, hopefully you can join us again on Friday, my man, to break down that first round of the green and gold because we love your stuff. We're going to continue on following at Thor KU on Twitter, also NBC Sports Edge and Roto World. We appreciate your time, man, and happy almost Christmas. Appreciate you. Can't wait. (laughs) See you, brother. There he is. We could talk all day. Unfortunately, the show's almost over. There he is for Thor. Good stuff.